Amazing. Have a seat. Have a seat. And as you see it, I, I wonder whether you could imagine with me or think with me back to your childhood. And I want you to think about the greatest memories that you have of your childhood. The times in your heart and in your lives that you remember back and you, you think back to almost what I would call core memories of your childhood. Those moments where you think about all the great things that happened for you. And maybe some of you have great memories of your family or great memories of a, a holiday you took or whatever it might be. But those memories where you're like, that defines who I was as a child. Those are memories that I cherish, memories that I celebrate. For me, so many of my core childhood memories, they're located largely in one singular place. And that's this house. This is the house that I lived in from the age of eight years old to about 11 years old. The house is located in a small town in Connecticut on the northeastern side of the U.S. called Wilson. Wilson's a small town and we lived in a small cul-de-sac in a small neighborhood and so many of my great childhood memories are from this particular house. I think one of the reasons why I love this house so much is because my dad loved this house so much. My, my dad worked for a bank uh, in the UK and he received a promotion. And when I was seven years old, the bank said, we want to move you to the US and you're going to start working for the bank in the US. And so for a year we lived in Charlotte and then we moved up to this house. And I, I remember my dad loved this house. In fact, my dad probably took this photo. This photo is from the early 80s. My dad took this photo because the house represented for him really the first time in his life that he was able to provide something significant for his family. He had a family of five and, and he had provided this home and there was a, a certain sense of pride that his family could grow up in a, in, a, in a beautiful, spacious place like this. My greatest memories of my father are found in this home. I remember he taught me how to throw a baseball and catch it in the driveway of this house. We played football on the lawn that you can see here, both the American kind and the British kind, right there. <laughs> At winter, my father taught me how to ski here. It would snow in Connecticut, and you can't see it, but on the left side of the building, there's a steep slope right there. My father taught me to ski down that slope. I remember the many hours that I spent with my father sitting in the living room here in like the little den area playing on an Atari Commodore 64. I don't know if anyone is old enough to remember that. That was a computer before they were computers, basically. So many of my favorite memories are of my father here. And when I think about the best times of my childhood, this is the place I think of. When my father passed away in March of 2019, I felt this overriding urge and, and motivation to return back to this house and visit it again. This overriding sense of, of, of heart that I had, that I, I wanted to reconnect my, with my father in the very place where I had the greatest memories of my father. The funny thing is, when we left here, when I was age 11 and we moved here to Hong Kong, we never went back. I, I hadn't been back for over 35 or, or so years and and so I felt as my, my father passed that, that to honor his memory and to reconnect with him in a deep way, I needed to get back to this house. And so 
Uh, we had a sabbatical in the summer of 2019, and so my wife, my daughter, myself, my mom, and my brother, we jumped on a plane from Hong Kong, we flew to New York, we hired a car, we drove the three hours up the freeway, and we entered into Wilton, and the very first place we stopped was this house. I remember pulling up along the driveway, remember, quiet cul-de-sac, we parked the car, all of us got out of the car, and there was this fence that lined up next to the, next to the house, and we leaned on the fence, and we looked at the house for the first time in 35 years, we would have looked very strange. Like, that's what the house looks like today. It's essentially the same house, just with a different paint job. And as we were staring at it, staring at it, if anybody had driven by, it would have been weird, this group of like seven people just going like this. <laughs> I remember the joy that I felt in my heart because Mia, my daughter, was with me as we were looking at this house, and she was about the same age as I was when I, looked, when I lived there. And as I was staring at the house, I realized this is not enough for me. I have to be inside the house. (laughs) This is a very creepy thing, I know. But I had to work out how am I going to get myself inside this house. So I devised a plan. I decided I would buy a really nice card and I would write a letter inside this card. And in the letter I would say, I used to live in this house from the age of 8 to 11 and it was my father's favorite house and my father's just died of cancer and you need to let me come in and relive the memories of this house. Please let me in. Here's my mobile phone. Call me. I wrote the best letter anyone has ever written. And I dropped it into the little mailbox. You know, and you, in like in America, you put up the little flag, you know, to say that there was some mail there. Did a little prayer. And then we retreated to our hotel. I got my mobile out and I was like. <laughs> Two hours later, the phone rings. And it's the wife in the house. She's wife, husband, two kids. And she's like crying on the phone. She's like, your letter so moved me. Uh, We brought this house five years ago, and uh, we love this home, and it's so good to hear that you love it as well. And your father's just passed away, and would you like to come over tomorrow at 10 o'clock for coffee? I would love to host you in the home and help you to relive your memories. And I was like, yeah. Four hours later, the phone rings again. This time, it's the husband of the house. This is a very different conversation to the one with the wife of the house. The husband's like, who are you? Why do you want to come into my house when I'm not around? Like, who are you? Tell me about, and and literally, like he was kind of aggressive. He was like, how do I know you're not a freak? How do I know that you're going to come into this house and you've just written a nice letter to work your way into the home and you're going to do something nasty in our house? Like, this is terrible. Who are you? So basically he's asking for like a a LinkedIn, like live kind of like go through my whole history with him, right? So I'm like, well, I was born in the UK and I started to go through my history. That wasn't good enough. He wanted to know every place that I had ever worked and what position I had held in the places where I worked. It was like I was being interviewed for the CIA. So I'm going like, okay, sure. So, uh, well, I originally worked at this headhunting company and I did that for a while. And then I moved to an American investment bank called Morgan Stanley and I worked there for a while. He's like, what did you just say? And I said, oh, I I work for a US investment bank called Morgan Stanley. I worked there. He's like, you work for Morgan Stanley? I said, yeah. He said, I've worked for Morgan Stanley for 38 years And he said, if you've worked for Morgan Stanley, if you're good enough to work for Morgan Stanley, you're good enough to come into my house. (laughs) So the next day, 10 o'clock, knock on the door. The wife welcomes us into my childhood home. 
And I can't, I can't really describe the emotions I felt as I walked through that house. Um, we, had, we got this cheesy family photo outside. The one on the top there is my mom when she was super young with her mother. Uh, and there's my mom and the rest of our family and my daughter there outside the front. As we walked through every single room, I just had wave after wave of emotion and memory of my father. And I remember connecting with him deeply as I was walking, but I also sensed something else that I didn't expect to sense, and that was a sense of closure. I, I actually felt like my father was with me walking through the house and saying, this was what you had, and this is what we had, and it was a good thing, but now you have a daughter of your own, and you have future core memories that you need to give to her. And I felt like my father was like passing a baton to me as I was walking through the home, and I realized that in that moment, there was a shift that was happening within me. And this house meant so much to me, so many of my core memories, so many of my memories as a child to a father. And I felt like what my father was encouraging me to do as I walked through the house was to shift my mentality and my identity to thinking about myself not as a child to a father in this home, but now as a father to my child, Mia. And that, and that shifting point in identity was one of the key reasons why I was able to begin to move through the morning that I was feeling at this time. And I remember leaving that house and getting in the car and feeling very emotional, shedding a, a few tears, thinking to myself, I'm a father and I have a daughter and I get to create such great memories and I wanna live my father's legacy by now shifting away from just thinking about being his son to being a father myself. As we come to the halfway point of Exodus, and as we come to chapters 19 and 20 that we're looking at this week and next week, this idea of a shift in identity is what these two chapters are all about. These are the chapters that capture for us Moses and Israel returning to the very place where Moses had been some 35, 40 odd years earlier. A place that held for him so many great core memories. The very place where he had met with God 40 years before in the burning bush and had such a profound encounter with God. He's now returned to the same place, Mount Sinai. And this Mount Sinai was a little bit like me returning to that house in Connecticut. It, it was a place of deep connection for him. Can we put up the Mount Sinai picture, please? There you go. It was a place of connection for Moses. It, it was a place where, where, where he could find himself with God once again. Because prior, 40 years ago, that's what had happened for him. At that time of the burning bush, Moses was a broken man. A broken man struggling with his identity, wondering, am I actually a prince of Egypt or am I an Israelite? And he's stuck between these two identities that were causing him a lot of tension. He had just murdered an Egyptian and fled from that Egyptian. And now here he is in this mountain and God appears in a fire on a bush and calls him towards him. He says, take off your sandals. The ground he's standing on is holy ground. And God begins to speak to him of a new identity. He begins to say that I've got a purpose and a value and something for your life. And Moses begins to realize that his life has not come to an end here. There's a new beginning. And, and he begins to receive the call from God to go back to Egypt, the very place that he did not want to go to, and actually say to Pharaoh, let my people go, because God wants them to, to come and to be with him. And as God's giving him this vision and, and, and this idea of his identity, Moses is pushing back on it. And I think we all do this as Christians. When God speaks to us of calling and vision and identity, it's very easy for us to push back and say, well, I can't do that. 
That can't be me. I, I'm not like that. I don't have those gifts. I don't have those skills. And Moses is doing this before God. And God, because he's a father, gives a fatherly promise to Moses at this time. This is in chapter 3. We've looked at this before, but let me just remind you of this. In chapter 3, verse 12, and God says this to Moses, I will be with you. And this will be a sign to you that it is I who has sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you will worship God on this mountain. In other words, you're going to return back to this very place with a free people. And at that time, Moses was like, I don't even know if that's ever going to happen. And now, as we're in chapter 19, the very thing that Moses believed would never happen has happened. He and Israel return to the mountain to worship God. Let me read to you how actually uh, Moses talks about it at the start of chapter 19. In the third month after the Israelites left Egypt, on the very day, notice this, Moses is being very personal here. He's like, I remember the very day they came to the desert of Sinai. After they set out from Rephidim, they entered the desert of Sinai, and Israel camped there in the desert in front of the mountain. I wonder if you could sense the emotions that Moses must have been feeling. Like me, walking through the house and all those emotions of those connections to core memories. Now, now here's Moses standing at the mountain with all of Israel with him, and all those core memories come back. And all that God had promised, and all that God said he would do, has actually happened. And I can imagine that Moses is standing at the mountain full of joy, full of wonder, full of amazement that God has, has done what he said he was going to do, that his people are free and his people have gathered. And you could sense Moses welling up in worship. The very thing that God has said, you're going to return to this mountain and worship me. There is Moses going, I can't believe it, but we're here. This is personal for Moses because he has gone from a place of a broken identity to a place of a, a leader of his people. And as he's standing at that mountain, I'm sure he's saying, only because of you, God. This personal nature for Moses with Mount Sinai was what I wanted to try and capture for you as we actually did a film for this particular week. And when I was talking to the crew some four years ago and we were planning out every film, I was like, wouldn't it be awesome if we actually did the hike up Mount Sinai ourselves?" Now, Moses, when he did it, there was no path there at all. And these days, it's a very well-worn path. And if you're fit, you can actually do the about four and a half hour hike from the base of Mount Sinai up to the top. If you're not fit, you can get a camel to take you up three quarters of the way. But then you still got to do about a quarter of it. And we thought it'd be fantastic. Why don't we film this? And unlike the other films in the series where we have scripts and we have it all planned out, this one, we're just going to make it pretty raw. Because for Moses, it would have been raw. It would have been this kind of pilgrimage for him to go up a mountain. I said, why don't I go on a pilgrimage up the mountain? Let's film it. Let's not script it. Let's just see what happens. Let's capture it for everybody. And hopefully in that, help people to understand the personal nature of what chapters 19 and 20 are all about, but also the personal nature of what this part of the Exodus story has to say to you. So let's take a look at my hike. Exodus chapter 19 is perhaps the most pivotal chapter in the whole of the Exodus story. God calls Moses up to the top of Mount Sinai so he can meet with him, uh, commune face to face, and ultimately give him the Ten Commandments that will shape God's people forever. Now, 
ever since I was a kid and came to faith in my early 20s, uh, I've always had this deep desire in me to follow in Moses' footsteps, to actually do the hike myself up Mount Sinai and, and kind of experience for myself what it would be like to meet with God on the mountain. Well, today, actually, the dream comes into reality. I'm about to uh, hike up Mount Sinai here, and there are some camels right here that are going to go right past me. Watch this. Watch this. This is a real thing. Go. There you go. That's how it works here. All right. Anyway, so I'm, I just stepped in the camel poo too. But anyway, the camels are, are going to go ahead of us. I'm going to hike up to Mount Sinai right now, uh, and I'm really excited. It's about just before midnight. Uh, it's super cold. It's going to be a little bit windy, um, but uh, I'm really excited to do this, and I can't wait because I'm going to bring you along with me on the journey. Let's go. As I take the first few steps here past St. Catherine's Monastery, um, yeah, I'm reflecting on kind of the journey already. <laughs> it's been four years uh, of the Exodus Project to get to this point, and uh, it's taken years of study and research and preparation, and then COVID delayed it, and then now I'm finally here. I've dreamt about this hike for so long, and it makes me think about our Christian journey, actually, that you know, while study and research of scripture is of course important, it's actually the doing that really counts. It's actually putting what you've learned into practice that matters the most. And every single step I'm taking is a little bit kind of a metaphor on my own Christian life in the sense that, you know, every single day I have to take that next step in my journey with Jesus. And it's a practice of faith. It's not just a research of faith. And, you know, as I start out on the trip, um, I'm reflecting a little bit about Moses's journey himself. I mean, he didn't have a nice path to walk on like I do. Uh, he would have had to scramble up all the rocks to get to the summit. And I'm sure at the beginning point, Moses was thinking to himself, why doesn't God come and meet me down here? Why do I have to go up there to meet with God? I mean, God had met Moses on a flat plain in a burning bush in the past. Why not now? And I think God was trying to teach Moses something. He was trying to let him know that actually the relationship he's forming in Israel is going to require obedience, faithfulness. It's going to require them to sacrifice. It's going to be a hard, narrow path. Jesus, many years, would reflect the same. He would say, if you want to follow me, you're going to have to pick up your cross. There's going to be sacrifice. There's going to be the need for obedience. And I think the journey up the mountain was really part of the formation for Moses. Here's another thought. You know, it's so dark here as we've been walking that I've been tempted to pull out a flashlight and use some artificial light to help me to walk. Um, and I, I think we do that in our sin as well. When we're faced with the darkness of our sin, we try to throw some artificial light over it to make ourselves feel better about it, uh, to try to pretend that it's no big deal or maybe convince ourselves that we're going to deal with it and get over it easily when the reality is it's deeply entangled in us. See, when you hike in a place like this, it's actually best not to use artificial light. It's best just to walk in the darkness, to actually get accustomed to the darkness, to allow your eyes to realize the, the, the sort of optical illusion that is there when you use artificial light. And I think it's the same for our sin. When we put away those artificial lights that try to make ourselves feel better about it and actually just sit in the in the actual reality of the darkness of sin, it enables us to know where we're starting when it comes to repentance. And I think that's such an important part of the Christian journey. 
I want to encourage you to put away your artificial lights and actually allow yourself to realize where you are in the sin that you're struggling with. And from that point, God can bring his real light. It's not artificial light when it comes to Christ. It's light that brings us into freedom. So we've been walking for about 40, 45 minutes now. Uh, that's St. Catherine's in the village down there. Our path is up here. All right, I'm, uh, I'm here at the, the halfway house of the mountain. I'm literally about halfway up now. And uh, this is uh, such a nice place to rest. I mean, it's so comfortable here. There's a beautiful fire. And I, I tell you what, it's quite cold on the mountain. So I've been here about 10 minutes now and it's uh, really comfortable. I had a cup of tea. And, uh, you know, I've been reflecting that so often this is like our spiritual journey. You know, God calls us to a destination. And, uh, and uh, you know, it's a, it's a difficult journey up the hill. Uh, and uh, it takes a lot of courage and a lot of sacrifice. And we get about halfway and we're tempted to settle there in our spiritual lives, in our spiritual halfway house. And uh, we kind of convince ourselves, oh, you know, yeah, God called me up there, but, you know, I've already sacrificed so much and I'm happy where I am right now. And, and we kind of settle into this kind of halfway house mediocrity of our spiritual lives, knowing that Christ is calling us deeper but happy just to settle where we are. And I think that's the great temptation of all of our spiritual journeys. And, you know, for me right now, I'd be happy to tell you, oh yeah, I made it to the top of the mountain, but kind of fake it and just stay here and then go back down the hill. But, you know, that's not really what it is. You know, God has called us to be at the top and we need to keep pressing into our relationship with Him. So I'm going to rest a little bit more and then I'm going to pick myself up, get going again. And I want to encourage you to do that in your spiritual life too. If you feel like you've kind of rested, if you feel like you've sort of settled into mediocrity in your spirituality, can I encourage you? Get up, get going again. There's so much more that's ahead. As they say in uh, Egypt, yalla. Yalla. All right, let's go. All right, we're about like I don't know, maybe like three quarters of the way up now. And like this is, this is Mount Sinai right here. This is the rock, you know what I mean? Like it's really actually beginning to feel a little bit like I think what Moses would have seen. I think the earlier part of the walk, it felt like I was in some national park anywhere in the world. But now when you see the kind of color here, you may not be able to see the color because it's dark, but uh, the actual shape and the feel, it's like, it's like this is kind of what I had in mind. Uh, and it's really special. Really special. Mount Sinai. <laughs> I'm about uh, three hours into the hike now and I'm on, I'm on a staircase. It's a, a rock staircase. There's about 750 stairs now to the summit. So I'm not actually that far from the summit, but this is the hardest part of the hike. I'm, I'm out of breath. The stairs are, are tall and steep. And, and it's got me to reflect a little bit about our spiritual lives again, right? So often when we get close to a goal that Christ has put in our hearts, things get harder. You know, we often think in a climb up the mountain that the hardest part is at the start. It's not true. The steepest part of the mountain is always right before the summit. And it's the same with us in our spiritual lives, with the goals that Christ gives us. 
the enemy loves to come in right at the end when we've almost achieved the goal and try to knock us back again, try to make it so hard that we'll quit right at the finish line. And I'm kind of feeling like that right now. I'm like, man, I don't know if I've got much more energy to get up there. Um, and that's when we need to press in again. We need to push through that barrier and keep going. And I imagine Moses, as he's at this part of the mountain as well, he's thinking like, it's not that far, but it's super hard. I think the hardest part of the climb is ahead of us right now. And uh, yeah, so we've got to push in. Actually, there are actually about 3,750 steps from the very base of the mountain to the summit. And the monks that live here, they call it the staircase of repentance because of the pain involved in getting up to the top. And I have to say, now that I'm almost there, these stairs are very well named. Well, after nearly four hours of hiking, I finally made it to the summit. You can't see much right now because it's still night, it's still dark. Ah, man, what a trip. That was incredible. Uh, super hard, but I'm so glad to be here. Uh, I'm at 2,285 meters. That's how high we are right now. And in a few moments, the sun will rise up behind me. And you know, as I get here in the darkness, it makes me think about Moses when he first arrived on the summit. You know, he must have had this mixture of excitement and anticipation. But I would also think probably a little bit of anxiety and fear as he's about to walk into the fog, you know, the presence of God that was on the mountain at the time. And it must have been um, just this awesome sense of God here. And, you know, the fear in him must have been very palpable. And, you know, it's a significant moment. The courage of Moses to not just do the walk up here, but then to walk into the presence of God and literally receive the law that would come to reshape the Jewish people and who they are and, and really change all of history. That happened right here. And as I sit here in this moment, having finally achieved my dream, I'm really quite overwhelmed by the, by the profundity of what happened right here. There's a section in Exodus 19 where in the Hebrew it reads this. It says, Moses comes up to the top of the mountain and then is on the top of the mountain. Now, in the Hebrew, it repeats top of the mountain twice in the same sentence, and it has confounded scholars. But actually, here is what it means. It means that for Moses, this experience of meeting God required two things. There was the coming up to the top of the mountain. That was the doing. But then when he was on the summit, like I am right now, he had to then be with God. That was the second part of being on the, on the top of the mountain. So Moses was here and he needed to settle in the presence of God, be with him, stop his doing and just rest. 
And now that I'm here on the summit with the sun coming up, that's exactly what I want to do. So I'm going to wrap this up here. I'm so grateful that you are on the journey with me up the mountain. But now I'm just going to spend some time to be with God. It is this idea of being and not just doing that Exodus 19 and 20 are all about. Because it is now here where God is going to reshape their identity as a people. He's been going to help them to understand who they truly are. And I want to just unpack a little bit about that here, if you're willing to give me about another 10, 15 minutes. Is that all right? Everybody handle that? You didn't do the hike. I did the hike. Say yes. Good. <laughs> I did it for you. No, it's good. Okay. Verse 3 says, And Moses went up to God, and the Lord called to him from the mountain and said, This is what you are to say to the house of Jacob, and what you are to tell the people of Israel. You yourselves have seen what I did to Egypt, and how I carried you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. I, I love it. The very first thing God does is he basically does like previously on the Exodus, right? And he takes them on this kind of journey of what's already happened. And he says, you yourselves have seen what I did in Egypt. You understood all the things that I've, I've done, how I revealed myself to you, how I showed you my power and my might, how I was compassionate for you. You saw the plagues. You saw the parting of the Red Sea. You saw the manna fall from heaven. You saw all of that, and you understand that because you know me. I've revealed myself to you in all of that. He says, I carried you on eagle's wings. The idea, I'm intimately caring for you. I stepped in. You didn't do any of that in your own strength. I did all that for you, God is saying. I carried you on these intimate eagle's wings. And he said, I brought you to myself. Notice this. He doesn't say, I brought you to freedom. He doesn't say, I brought you to success. He doesn't say, I, 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 I achieved all your dreams for you. He said, what I've done for you is I've freed you in order that you would find a home in me, that you would come to myself. You know, the greatest gift that God will ever give you is himself. Come on, church. It is himself. It's not always the things that you're dreaming for. It's not always the things you're praying for. It's not even sometimes your healing. It's not even sometimes that restoration you want. The greatest gift that he will give. And he wants to heal you. He wants to restore you. He wants to do all those things. But the greatest thing he will ever do for you is show himself to you. Is welcome you into his presence and so that you can have an intimate relationship with you. And he said, I've done this. I've carried you guys on, on my wings. I've brought you to myself. And, and he starts by saying, you yourselves have experienced all this. This is the only time in the Hebrew, in the whole of the Old Testament, where the words you is repeated twice side by side. So in English, we say you yourselves, but in the Hebrew, it's you, you. What he's saying is you corporately know what's happened, but you individually also know what's happened. In other words, you have a personal encounter and you personally witness all the things that I've done from the, old, from, from the time that you were in slavery in Egypt all the way up to now. It's like God is basically saying this to Israel. He's saying, you know me, but do you know who you are? You know who I am because I've done all these things. I've revealed myself to you and you've seen it all personally, corporately and personally. You know who I am, but do you know who you are, he's challenging them. Do, do you have an understanding of your identity? Do you know what it is that I've saved you for? Do you know what it is that I've, I've rescued you for? Do you know what your purpose is, your value is, your mission is? Do you understand what it is that I've done in you? And the reality is that God had revealed himself 
to Moses at the burning bush, to Pharaoh, to Egypt, and to Israel. He's brought them all to this mountain, but the story doesn't finish here. Chapter 19 would be a nice place to wrap up the story, wouldn't it? Maybe the Exodus could have been just chapters 1 to 19, and that would have been a nice bow on the whole story because we would have seen God's deliverance. But if that had happened, all we would have learned is who God is. And what God wants to do at this part of the story and for the next 20 chapters is to tell you who you are, to help Israel to understand who they are in their identity with him and to help you understand who you are in your identity with Christ. That's what the rest of the Exodus story is all about. See, our our journey in Exodus is not just a journey in a God who makes himself known. It's a journey in a God who makes ourselves known. And, And some of you here, you've experienced a deliverance out of some sin that you've been perhaps enslaved to, but you're still struggling to know who you are. You're still struggling to know what your value is, what your mission is, what your calling in life is. The number one question I get as a pastor, Pastor Andrew, what is my calling in life? Well, if you give me another 10 minutes, I'll tell you what your calling in life is. Because this is what Israel is crying out and wondering. We're free now, but what are we going to do? Who are we? And what is God going to do in and through us? And so God begins to unpack the idea of what he's going to do. You need to understand that the number one thing that slavery does, it strips your identity from you. The whole definition of slavery is designed to strip from you your value and who you are and how you understand yourself. I've actually had, I wouldn't call it the privilege, but I've actually sat with traffickers in Bangkok. I was working with an NGO at the time and we were connected with traffickers, human traffickers. And I met with this trafficker and he explained to me that the number one priority they have when they take women is to so disempower and and strip them of their identity that they basically think they have no worth and no value so they won't fight back. And that's, that's, that should shock us. But that's what the enemy does with every form of slavery. Any sin that we are enslaved through is designed to strip you of your identity and how you've been created in the image of God and how God sees you and to strip your value and how you understand yourself. And so when you get free from a sin, when God heals you and you bring your sin to him and he, he, you repent of it and he, he, he washes you white as snow, it's a wonderful thing. But there's another step that should happen after that. Because not only is it one thing to be taken out of slavery, it's another thing to then discover who we now truly are. Israel arrives at Mount Sinai and they have no idea who they are. Are you with this? And when we come out of our sin We have to remember that we have lost something of our identity because of that sin. The enemy comes to kill and destroy, but Jesus comes to give life and life abundant. See, one of the very core ideas of the whole Exodus is that you're not just saved from something. You're saved to something. And this is where Israel is. And God is saying, do you know why I've saved you? Would you like to know why? No? Okay, let's go. (laughs) Would you like to know why you're saved? Why you have a calling? Why God wants you free to himself so that you can live for him? Let me show you what God says next. Verse 5. Now, if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then out of all the nations you will be my treasured possessions. Although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you are to speak 
to the Israelites. In a moment where Israel is going, who are we? Because we don't know who we are anymore because in slavery, our whole identity has been submerged. We've been disempowered. We've been stripped of who we are. They're now standing at Mount Sinai and they're saying, who are we? And the very first thing God says to Moses on the mountain is, this is who you are. And for some of you in the room, what I'm about to tell you is the most singular important thing for you to truly grow in Christ Jesus. Because what God says in this moment helps to unpack so much for Israel, and I think so much for you. Let me break down what it is that God does. Is this helpful for anyone? Okay, let me break down for you exactly what God is saying about... So first of all, God has made himself known. That's the first thing he tells Israel. He reminds them, oh, hello. This is not going to go well, is it? Okay, good. Ah! All right, give me one second. I'm going to fix this properly. Oh, no, it's getting worse. It's really worth it. Trust me, just wait. Hallelujah. So God has made himself known, remember, through the whole of the Exodus journey. And in doing that, what he's done is he's delivered his people. Now, what you need to understand is that in his delivery of his people, he makes himself known as well. So first of all, God made himself known to Moses at Burning Bush. He delivers his people, and in delivering his people, he further makes himself known. Does that make sense to you? So they come to understand his character, his nature, by the fact that he has delivered his people, right? Then what God says on Mount Sinai in this moment, when he says, he says I'm creating for you what's called this covenantal relationship. Now, covenantal relationship. Now, I'm going to come back to this more next week when we have a bit more time. But what covenantal relationship is, is what's about to happen on the top of Mount Sinai with the giving of the law and all of that. God's saying, I've made myself known. I delivered you. Now, out of that, I'm going to create a covenantal relationship with you so that you can truly understand who you are. And in this passage, he says two things for them about who they are. He says, first of all, you have to understand that you are what he calls priests. And he says, you've got to understand that you are also now called to be a holy nation. You are priests and you are holy. These are the fundamental parts of who we are in Christ Jesus. If you're wondering, who am I? What value do I have? What input can I make in the world? You are a priest and you are holy. Let me break these down real quick. Priests in the Old Testament, when God speaks to Israel about them being a priest, priests had three primary functions. Those functions were intercession, so praying. They were invitation, helping people to come into the presence of God. And they were imitation, helping to show the people God's character by how they live their lives. These three things, intercession, invitation, and imitation, is what it meant to be a priest. Priests were the mediators between God and the world. They would help to connect the world and God together through prayer. They would pray on behalf of the world. What we just did a moment ago when we prayed for the situation in the Middle East, we were priests together. We were connecting God and the world together and saying there are needs and making that connection. We are to invite. Priests set the stage for people to encounter their worship of God. Christians are designed to invite people into the presence of God. That's what we're called to do. Imitation. The priests were, were called to show the world God's character by how they lived their lives. 
So we as Christians are called to reveal the character and nature of God to everybody through how we live our lives. Intercession, invitation, imitation is who we're called to be. But we're also called by God as holy. And this speaks of two areas, transformation. I can't spell. Transformation and being set apart. It is the Holy Spirit that transforms us from our brokenness and our sin into the life that he wants us to be. Without his spirit at work in us, in our culture, in our society, there is no transformation. Transformation towards becoming more like Christ Jesus is always driven by his spirit. So when he says, I call you holy, I bless you to be holy, he's inviting us into a transformative journey in who we are. Does that make sense to you? And he says, you are to be set apart. Being holy is set apart which means you should look different, be different, have different values to everything else you see in the world. He doesn't mean set apart in the sense that go up into a hill somewhere, be in a monastery and just act weird, okay? We're not supposed to be weird Christians, but we are supposed to be set apart. We're all supposed to have different values and different purposes and different hope. When when people around us feel like they've got no hope, we stand up and go, there is hope. We have a different culture, a different thinking, a different narrative. And God's saying, I've created you to be set apart in the world, but not of the world. I didn't call you to be out of the world and not of the world. I called you to be in the world, but not of the world. Because if you're in the world, but you're holding a different narrative, you're holding a different hope, you're holding a different lifestyle, you're holding different values, you begin to imitate my character to the world around you. Now more than ever here in Hong Kong, the church has to be holy. Not pious, close the doors, just worship Jesus on our own and not talk to anybody. Holy in the sense that we're set apart in the city that we're planted in. Carrying a different kind of narrative to the one that the world is currently hearing. Are you with me? Anyone else passionate about that? And what what God is saying is in these two things, being holy and being priest, we find our calling and our mission. And next week, as we look at chapter 20, we'll learn a lot more about what that calling and that mission looks like. But here, as God speaks to them about identity change, he's saying, know who you are. You know who I am. Do you know who you are? Paul would write this. He would say, for we have been set free. Now be free. What he's saying is now live as God has called you to live. Peter as he's pastoring the first church. He's trying to think, how do I help them to understand who they are? How do I help them understand that they're not just being saved and that's it, but that there's so much more to the story. And so interestingly, Peter writes to the church and he actually quotes from this very chapter in Exodus 19. Let me read this to you. He writes this to a Jew and Gentile church. He says, but you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God that you might declare, notice this, you are a holy people. You've been chosen by God. You are a holy people. You are a nation of priests so that you might declare, you have a calling and mission, so that you might declare what he says here is the light of God. You would declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light, that you would be a mouthpiece, a voice piece for the incredible work that God does in and through us as people. This, my friends, is who you are. You want to know what your calling is? To be a priest, to be holy, 
so that you can declare the praises of him who's called you out of darkness into his glory light. You know what you should be dedicating your life to? So that you could be a priest and you could be holy so that you could call out of the darkness the light of God and give him praise for who you are. That's his invitation to you. Are you with me? If that doesn't inspire you, I don't know what will. Like if that doesn't set your heart on fire, if that doesn't recalibrate how you think about work, if that doesn't change the way that you think when you go into the office tomorrow or when you raise your kids or when you think about your marriage or you think about your future, if this idea of being God's mouthpiece and his voice and his heart to being in the world but not of it, to bring hope where there is no hope, if that doesn't inspire you, I don't know what will because this is the gospel. If Exodus had finished at chapter 19, we wouldn't have gotten any of that. We would have just come to know him. But Exodus 19 onwards is God now saying, get to know you. And what we're going to be doing over the next number of weeks here at The Vine is helping you to live in the freedom that God has given you. Amen? Could you stand? I'd love to pray for you. Father, we're just so grateful for the men, women, children, and families that are here in this moment. And Father, we stand before you as a chosen people. We stand before you as a royal priesthood, as a holy people. Sometimes we don't feel that way. If we're honest, sometimes we don't act that way. It's very easy in our slavery to sin to discount who it is that we've actually been created to be. And so a free Israel comes to Mount Sinai and God appears and he says, now the real journey begins. It's so important that we understand that in the story of Exodus, it's not just a story of God's power in delivering a people without freedom. It's a story of God's power in reviving a people without identity. And some of you in this room, you're a Christian, you love Jesus, he saved you, you're free, but you struggle to know who you truly are. And if that's you, I want to encourage you this morning just to receive from him. Receive his presence with you. Receive his voice over you. You have value. And your sin and your brokenness has stripped so much of how you see yourself, but you have value. I see you as a priest. I see you as the very one that can mediate between the world and God. Some of you need to know, and I I feel this for this service in particular, some of you in this room, because of the slavery of sin that you've been in, you felt anything but holy. And we're gonna learn next week a lot more about what holiness really is. And I'm, I'm gonna unpack that for you next week, but right now in this moment, Some of you just need to know you are holy. You need to know that that's how God sees you. That's the identity he brings to you. That in his presence, we are washed clean and we are holy. I feel like the enemy has stolen that thought from some of you in this room. And because of that, you've held back in your decisions and your dreams and your hopes you felt like God could never really use me because of X, Y, and Z in my past. 
Israel comes to Mount Sinai with all of that baggage of their past and God is about to tell them who they truly are. And I pray in this moment and over the next number of weeks, you will hear who it is that you are. And for some of you in this room, God is saying, it's time to go. Perhaps you know who you are, but for whatever reason, you're, you've kind of camped at Mount Sinai. It's really important. Israel was at Mount Sinai for one year, a long time, because they needed to know who they were. But they weren't camped at Mount Sinai forever. Some of you, you're always seeking the mountaintop experience. And that's important in seasons of our life. But for some of you, it's time to come down the mountain. And it's time to get into the valley. And it's time to see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living, not just on the top of the mountain. Some of you are receiving a calling today to go. Holy Spirit, whatever it might be for whoever here, I just pray that you'd come. Maybe just open your hands if you're comfortable. And I'm just gonna invite the team to come and just worship over us. And as they worship over us, just allow yourself to be ministered to in whatever way that God wants to speak to you today.